I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author and professor of sociology and education at American University, Cynthia Miller Idris, uh, PhD. Her new book is Hate in the Homeland, the New Global Far Right. With the U.S. overcome by protests, a pandemic, and extreme political polarization, the findings in Cynthia Miller Idress's new book are crucial for understanding this era's rising extremism. Informed by years of research, she reveals how far-right groups are growing their ranks and strengthening their hold on youth culture by recruiting vulnerable targets in surprisingly mundane settings, including college campuses, mixed martial arts gyms, clothing stores, online gaming chat rooms, and YouTube cooking channels. She lays out the strategies, tactics, and underlying ideas of modern far-right extremism, as well as the role meme culture plays in the symbolism and branding of modern extremist movements. She's been featured on CNN, NPR, Wired, New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal. Welcome to the show, Cynthia. Nice to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I guess this next half hour, we are going to be talking about a pretty dark topic because I find that a lot of people, just your average college-educated person, doesn't really want to talk about this. It, it, it becomes too scary and too overwhelming. I, I mean, I don't know if that's your experience. Obviously, you're a professor in an academic setting. Yeah. But people shy away from this topic. We don't want to know that this is happening. Um, and it is scary he- stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say people do shy away from it, but I also find, you know, I spend a lot of time talking with parents um, who are worried about their their kids getting exposed to this in places like online gaming, where we know 23% of gamers encounter white supremacist extremist propaganda or dialogue in the middle of gaming. And so I hear a lot from parents who are worried, a lot from teachers who want to know what they want to do. And um, and we spend a lot of time in my research lab developing tools to help parents and caregivers and teachers and educators and principals know how to, how to kind of intervene at earlier stages to prevent some of this stuff. So I think you're right. People don't want to think about it, but they do want to think about how to prevent it. And that's um, what hopefully the book will give some people some, some tips on how to do it more effectively. Okay, I mean that's critical. Obviously, preventing it. Maybe we could step back and talk about what. what let's talk about the rise of it. Where does it come from? Yeah. What What should we be, we would be looking for? Which is, I guess, also part of the prevention uh, process. But talk about the roots of all of this. Where did in the United yeah. States? Where is it? Where did it start? How did it start? <clears throat> Well, I think the first thing to understand when I talk about the far right, it's a spectrum of groups and movements and individuals and beliefs. The majority of it, statistically speaking, in terms of where violence happens is in what is called white supremacist extremism, um, which are, you know, extremist beliefs that use violence to enact, you know, uh, anti-democratic goals that believe in hierarchies of people, inferiority and superiority across racial groups. But we also have the second largest group is anti-government extremists, and that's what we've been seeing a lot of this fall are the uh, patriot militia groups and kind of seditionists or sovereign citizens who are um, plotting violence against 
governments, local governments, state governments, or um, nationally because they believe there's tyranny. And we've seen a lot of that kind of growth under the um, uh, pandemic conditions and reaction to shelter-in-place orders. And sometimes there's overlap across those groups. So it's sort of more like a Venn diagram than a really distinct um, set of bands on a spectrum. And that's why sometimes it's confusing to people. Are these white supremacist groups? Are these patriot militias? What is happening? And you may have individuals who... Um, you know, cut across uh, different parts of that spectrum. So the roots of it depend a little bit on which parts of it you're talking about. And on the militia side of it, where we've seen a lot of growth this fall in particular, um, a lot of those roots date all the way back to um, the, the return of veterans from the Vietnam War and the establishment of some sort of training camps with really disgruntled um, veterans who had uh, felt betrayed by the government and also by um, the American public who had changed their opinion about the war while they were overseas. And, uh, and from those roots, you ended up with this evolving several decades of anti-government um, extremism that, you know, culminated in 1995 in the Oklahoma City bombing and then was was quieter for a little while. And I think what we're seeing right now is another wave like we had in the 1990s around that Oklahoma City bombing of that of the anti-government extremist side of the far right um, becoming uh, much more active. But statistically speaking, most of far right extremism is white supremacist extremism and the most recent report from the Department of Homeland Security just released last month does identify it um, finally after a long um, after a long time of not paying sufficient attention to it identifies it as the most lethal threat uh, from the extremist fringe that is facing the nation right now. So I think it's important to recognize the growth in the anti-government side, but but still recognize this is where the the greatest risk and the threat comes from is from the white supremacist extremist fringe. So these white supremacists, actually, where are they physically? Do we know where they are and and who the leaders are? Yeah, one of the things that's important to understand is that, um, so first of all, that it's a global movement, not just an American one. We've had a 320% increase in right-wing terror globally over the last five years. So this is an issue that the United Nations is taking up. It's an issue that um, is, you know, is much more than any one country um, or any one period of time in one country even. So we're having, um, you know, a, a truly global growth in this. And we've seen that with terrorist attacks in Oslo and in Christchurch um, and in Germany last year. And so, you know, in other places. So we have seen these kinds of developments globally. Um, and, and the other thing that is harder for people to wrap their heads around is that uh, much of this, and even maybe most of it, doesn't happen within formal groups anymore. So there are dozens of groups, both still kind of small Ku Klux Klan groups that are, you know, historical but still active, um, as well as white supremacist extremist groups and terrorist groups across the country and in places you might not expect, in Brooklyn or in, um, you know, in, in major cities and in rural locations. Um, so they're really uh, everywhere, and you can look at that on, on various hate maps that are tracked by groups like the Southern Poverty Law Center or the Anti-Defamation League. But a lot of what happens is not through organized groups. And that's where I think it's harder for people to recognize, you know, if you're just an individual who's radicalizing online and kind of these self-radicalizing networks exposed to, you know, bad content, to memes and and, um, racist content online that introduces you to a to a whole uh, sort of rabbit hole of content and then eventually radicalize into uh, the use of violence. And that's what we've seen from a lot of recent 
uh, actors in El Paso or in in Pittsburgh, where we've had terrible terrorist attacks, that they are not formal members of groups. These were not things that were plotted or planned by groups or directed by a cell leader or anything like that. They're individuals who became radicalized. And that's where I think um, it's harder for people to understand that you don't have to be a card-carrying member of an extremist group in order to, to cause damage in this way. What about uh, one of the, th- the groups that you do talk about is the uh, Boogaloo Boy Movement, um, that that yeah. tip- sort of typifies the rise of this right-wing movement that you've been talking about. Talk to us about that group and and how it operates and who they are. Boogaloo, yeah, Boogaloo is a really interesting development because it's not exclusively far-right, and that's a lot of what's happening right now is we're seeing some breakdown across this ideological spectrum, uh, even if the majority of its activities are far-right, but they are they're not really a group or a movement. As I said, they are more like an organizing or a mobilizing idea. Boogaloo is a slang term that stands for civil war or um, revolutionary insurrection against the government. So it's like a code phrase. And it gets layered on to other other groups. So you'll see uh, groups from one part of the far right spectrum then using like a hashtag that says Boogaloo. That means um, civil war. We were calling for civil war. And so sometimes clusters of individuals come together in little boogaloo groups and, do, and have plotted and enacted terrible violence, but also individuals within a militia. You might have, a, you know, so some of the individuals um, uh, in these Michigan threats against the governor um, were purportedly affiliated with uh, uh, boogaloo themes, but but it's not like a whole boogaloo group there, right? So, it's, so it, it, it shows you a little bit about how confusing and complicated it is. And also the other thing I think it's really important to understand about the boogaloo is it started as a joke among teenagers, that concept, the idea of it. And it was a code phrase that referred to a 1984 breakdancing movie that was so similar to the original, it was a sequel, that it was panned and it had the word boogaloo in the title and um, and people started using it, kids started using it as a term to just refer to the second of anything and somebody started using it as a code for the second civil war and, but, you know, so it started out as a joke and a lot of times people think online youth culture is just a lot of jokes or something that they're going to grow out of but in this case it actually mobilized people to very real violence and to um, plots that have been interrupted and, and attacks and um, and so it shows that, you know, just what someone is doing as a young person online, a teenager, even when they're jokes, they can actually mobilize violent action in an offline context. And so, you know, I think uh, there are a lot of people out there who have said, even me, to me, reviewers for this work that I've been doing early on, aren't these kids just going to grow out of it, right? They'll say, like, this is just everybody goes through phases, and I went through a phase as a punk, or I went, you know, thinking it's just a subculture, um, far-right youth subculture. And uh, it may well be a subculture, but I think it also can can lead to terrible violence. And certainly anybody who's talked to the parent of a kid who has gone down that path and uh, in, in ways that it's too late to turn back from and has been arrested or imprisoned or worse, enacted terrible violence, um, you know, wishes, I think, that they had known earlier what was happening. Well, in a recent article, uh, you, I guess it was a CNN op-ed, you said that COVID-19 has helped create a perfect storm for this extremist uh, recruitment. What does that mean? How does that happen? Yeah. Yeah, we've seen that over the last several months, unfortunately, and it's really sort of three things happening all at once that coalesce into this perfect storm. So on the one hand, 
Um, we have had, you know, the conditions that people experience that everyone's experiencing under the pandemic, extreme isolation, anxiety, a sense of precarity, economic precarity, and uncertainty about the future, sometimes a sense of betrayal at the government or anger at the way things have been handled, um, uh, lack of control over one's life or predictability about the future. All of those kinds of conditions are um, are known vulnerabilities to extremist propaganda that offers an easy solution or that provides a scapegoat or someone to blame. And so we know that we have very vulnerable conditions out there for people to be drawn toward the explanations of conspiracy theories or extremist groups that are using persuasive rhetoric to tell you this is an easy answer or a place to enact meaning or a way to engage heroically with purpose and have a diff- you know, make a difference in something. But we also have extremist groups who've increased their circulation of propaganda. They have used the virus um, to call on their, you know, call on individuals to either spread the virus directly to law enforcement or elected officials or to target groups like Jews. We have seen that or that have used the virus to blame um, to spread anti-Semitic conspiracy theories or anti-Asian hate. Um, we've had rising hate crimes as a result against Asian Americans, for example. And you take those two conditions, the top-down increasing circulation of propaganda and extremist rhetoric, the bottom-up vulnerabilities, and you add to that this astronomical exponential kind of growth in the amount of time that people spend online um, you know, we have 70 million young people whose, whose lives just completely moved out of school uh, in person into online context uh, in K-12 and, and college systems, plus another 20 or 30 million young people who aren't in college, but in that same age group, you know, spending time online um, in a, in, with all those vulnerabilities. And that's that kind of perfect storm. It just creates a situation where you have a lot more vulnerability. And we have seen that. Um, you know, I heard the, the director of the National Center for Missing and Exploited, or someone who works for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children say, you know, that um, they, their reports of, of uh, circulation, you know, of circulation of exploited children online, of images and material, are up 7 million over last year at this time. That we have had um, FBI, you know, warnings about the increasing risk of child exploitation of predators taking advantage of children being online all the time. And so the same kinds of principles hold true and, the, and, and, you know, things would hold true for extremist propaganda as well. Kids are more vulnerable when they spend that much time online in particularly in, in unsupervised context. And a lot of them completely sympathetic to parents, you know, teenagers who are happy their kids are engaged online, they're trying to get their work done, or they have to work outside the home, kids are occupied, but they have fewer contacts with other adults at this time. Um, who might yeah, that's one of the things I was going to ask you about, because I, as you're talking about the isolation and then the anxiety and the yeah. uh, being, um, obviously, this is the perfect storm, because they're, they're when they're not in school, they don't have people right. like, uh, teachers, coaches, uh, even just friends of family, yeah. people who can see the, you know, maybe see some exactly. recognize red flags, I guess, is what we're talking about, exactly. right? Because they're not That's there. Exactly and even right. if the and parents it, are there at home, they're distracted. And as you just said, they're kind of happy the kids are in their rooms and not bothering them so that they can work. So that whole line exactly. of defense is missing. 
Exactly. And we, you know, we know, for example, that reports of child abuse are down tremendously this year. No one thinks that child abuse has actually gone down that much. But the, for, the main reporters of child abuse are teachers and nurses and pediatricians. And, and you know, children are just interacting with, um, with teachers in a physical way much, much less. And so, it's, it's, you know, that's a tragic outcome. And we also, I think, have the same risks of um, of exposure to propaganda and, uh, you know, online. If you, if you don't have teachers who might notice, uh, who ordinarily would see, a, you know, see a young person and, and hear something in class or see their behavior and be able to notice those red flags. And the same goes true for aunts and uncles and grandparents and people who maybe see young people more periodically. It can be harder to notice some of those changes when you're living with someone. And um, so the people who see coaches, employers, um, you know, your, your, your friends' parents, if you're maybe getting together with teenage friends outside but not in their house at the dinner table, you know, all of these other adults that we rely on as a society, as networks to, to capture things and help us understand when something's going wrong with a young person um, that are not there. And so... So what do we know, do? Like, things, I, let's yeah. maybe we should start yeah. getting into, okay, there are strategies or are ways in which we can mitigate yeah. some of this, obviously not all of it, but so what can parents do to protect their kids? I mean, from... Yeah, well, yeah. I'm glad you asked. We have actually <laughs> a guide we've released for parents and caregivers, um, which uh, folks can get on my research lab's website, which I'm happy to provide. It's american.edu backslash peril, P. E-R-I-L. It's partnered with the Southern Poverty Law Center. It's also on their guide. And we've been running a series of webinars for parents and caregivers and teachers and educators that bring together people. We have one this afternoon um, that people can register for. And uh, we have, uh, you know, parents of, of victims. Today we have Susan Bro, the mother of Heather Heyer from Charlottesville speaking. We have um, a former uh, white supremacist speaking, a young woman who was drawn into one of these groups who's, who's a teacher who will be talking about her, uh, what happened, how she was drawn in and how she came out of it. Um, we have, um, you know, a, a writer, a, a author of a guide for teachers that helps them confront white nationalism in schools. Um, and then our guide, which is free, that gives, you know, parents a sense of not only what are the, some of the warning signs and risks to watch out for, but what are some strategies to build resilience in young people to have um, less vulnerability to some of those narratives and offering them, for example, a sense of control in some small way over their lives right now to help strengthen their identity in ways that are not going to make them vulnerable to these promises of belonging and brotherhood that these groups offer them at a moment when they're Well, I want to stop you there because I want to ask, we're talking about the, you know, obviously some of the ways to mitigate this, but are there differences between uh, men and women or young girls and, and young men or even other demographics that, yeah. Yeah. We have seen um, increasing participation of young women in the white supremacist extremist fringe, even in the violent fringe in recent years um, in ways that are troubling. And uh, they often are now engaging through the kind of softer ways. And I know my book talks about these cooking channels where you have, you know, um, you know, opportunities where lifestyle channels or Instagram accounts that are sharing kind of, uh, you know, the purity of home food and cooking and homeschooling and homesteading, but at the same time, introducing language around tradition and European heritage or, 
um, you know, kind of white nationalist, white supremacist themes. Um, and so we are seeing increasing participation by young women, but overwhelmingly these are movements of young men and young men are overwhelmingly responsible for the violence. And a lot of these groups market themselves. And I use that word deliberately because there's a very clear marketing here um, of you know, with language around brotherhood and belonging, but also kind of defense um, and being a warrior and being a soldier and um, standing up for your your country or your nation or your race or your people. Um, and they use a lot of language that, that depicts an existential threat that they are called upon actually even morally to, to act. So they feel like they're enacting a heroic um, and when you hear the language, even in manifestos of recent terrorists, uh, they will use language like that, that, that says that they believe they're a martyr for the cause, or they believe they're acting heroically, that they want to inspire others. So they get, you know, so twisted kind of in the logic that it's, they, they're not actually, you know, amoral, they believe they're acting morally, but they just have a, a kind of twisted moral sense of how to rescue or defend or save uh, or protect their people. And that language is very much embedded, I think, in a lot of ideas about being a real man or engaging with um, with masculine strengths, kind of. And so that... Uh, do you think do the, uh, that that the Trump presidency effective. has uh, helped to normalize this kind of behavior? I mean, normalize this, the, these white supremacists yeah. and these kind of extremist ideas because over the past four years? So the rhetoric from the president, the campaign rhetoric and, and speeches... Um, that has been, you know, undeniably racist at times and uh, incendiary against immigrants has not helped. And we have, we saw that, I think, a very clear example um, in the first debate when, um, you know, whether he intended it or not in that reaction to the, the Proud Boys when he said, stand back, stand by, um, uh, what my research team, which was monitoring far-right channels during the d- debate, saw immediately in sending me screenshots was that that was celebrated online and seen as a call to action. And so one of the things I think that's really important is to understand, regard- whether it's intentional or not, it has often been been perceived and taken as a sense of legitimacy or has helped to kind of normalize and mainstream some of these ideas. But I think it's also really important to remember that the real exponential growth in hate groups happened right after President Obama was elected. And so this has deeper roots in the reaction of a fringe um, in the U.S. to the election of the first African-American president, and then also happens in the context of this global growth that I mentioned earlier, where we're seeing rising far-right extremism across a whole range of countries such that we've got 320% rise in right-wing terror over the last five years globally. And so, as, as I mentioned, the UN is now taking it up in their Security Council's Counterterrorism Committee as a discussion point because after years and years of focusing on Islamist terrorism and international extremism in that way, um, I think there's a growing recognition that this is not just a domestic problem of individual states, but it's something that has to be dealt with on a global level. So this administration has certainly not helped, but I think it's important to put that in the context of broader of broader issues that um, mean that even if this administration changes, this is a problem that is going to be enduring and has to be addressed. Yeah, this is a problem that has been evolving over a long period of time. Um, And I I guess this, you you are talking about, it's not just in the United States, it's globally. So is there a difference globally? Does the the United States differ in terms of how they recruit, in in terms of recruitment or what the issues are than the rest of the world? Or 
is it or is it some similar? differences but you know what's interesting is that the the the, the narrative, the conspiracies are exactly the same, but how they get articulated is a little bit different. So there's an overarching conspiracy theory called the Great Replacement, which has motivated most of the recent far-right terrorists that believes that there's an orchestrated attempt to replace white civilizations. And when you saw those young men marching across the Charlottesville campus chanting, you will not replace us or Jews will not replace us, that's what they're referring to is this this um, belief that there's an orchestrated effort to replace white people with multicultural societies and that the existential threat exists and that violent action has to be taken to stop it. And so a lot of these recent terrorist attacks have been motivated by that. But what you see is that in Europe, they frame that as um, because of immigration from Muslims and Muslim societies or a threat from Islam. And in the U.S., that gets framed through immigration um, and from other places um, or from racial demographic change. So the overarching conspiracy theory is pretty much the same, but in each country it sometimes gets articulated a little bit differently. But they share, you know, they share ideologies across borders, they share information, they travel to see one another, they live stream these attacks. And in international contexts, sometimes they even, um, you know, write their manifestos or live stream the attacks in English even when their native language is something else. And that's one of the things that really important indicators that show that they're kind of performing for other global audiences. And I use that word deliberately because I think they are performances, these violent performances that are trying to communicate with each other. Um, so it varies slightly, but I would say it's, there are more similarities than differences. We do have a couple minutes left, and I know you mentioned webs- one website and that there's a webinar this afternoon that people can join, but what else can, for more <clears throat> more information about what, we, what we've been talking about, and obviously there's a lot more in the book um, that we haven't had a chance to talk about, so g- give us sure. some, yeah. Yeah, I would recommend that anybody who's interested can, can visit our website, which is www.american.edu backslash peril, P-E-R-I-L. We have um, a video, we have an animated video out on the Boogaloo movement and an educator's guide for teachers and faculty on how to use that in the classroom to talk about misinformation and militia recruitment. We have guides for parents and caregivers, and we're working on other toolkits as well. And you can also visit my website at CynthiaMillerIdris.com to learn more about my book or see my op-eds and recent media appearances, which might help explain some of these things. And um, uh, and, and happy to uh, have members of my team follow up uh, if there are other folks out there interested in learning more. Great. Well, we've been talking to author and professor of sociology and education at American University, Cynthia Miller Idris, PhD, and her new book, Hate in the Homeland, The New Global Far Right. Um, You've been very, very helpful today, and I think you really sparked a lot of people's interest because uh, uh, this—it's—it's it's as you say, it's a growing problem and something we really do need to address. So, first things first, go out and buy the book "Hate in the Homeland." Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 